Hey everybody, it's Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development and it is our privilege to have with us Chris Weeks, who's the Vice President of Humanitarian Affairs for DHL. Hi Chris. Hi Craig. Great to have you here, thanks for giving us your time. Not at all, thank you, it's an absolute pleasure. I'd love for you to share with the audience and for our students particularly how you came to be with DHL and I think it was some years ago. It, yes, it certainly was. I'm a, a 42 year veteran of the company and I, I started initially in London uh, when it was a, a small a startup, if you like. And um, I worked in London for 10 years and then I moved to Brussels and worked there for, for 29 years. And I started out doing a variety of commercial and, uh, and operational roles. And um, the beauty of that uh, um, of the company at that stage, it was growing so fast that you could you could chop and change out of jobs and uh, move countries and um, and gain lots of experience that it's uh, hard to replicate nowadays. But um, exactly in that vein, in um, in the early 2000s, I had a fantastic opportunity to switch from doing a commercial role to the humanitarian role, which I um, I've been doing for the last 20 years. And um, it all came about because a, um, a CEO of ours was at the World Economic Forum in Davos in, uh, I believe it was 2001, but it's always um, earmarked because at that meeting in January uh, 2001, there was a, an earthquake in Gujarat in India. and um, all the uh, the delegates came came back from uh, or came down to breakfast on the Saturday, having sort of seen on CNN while they were getting up that this uh, massive earthquake had struck, and there were quite a few Indians in the audience and um, or participants rather at Davos, and um, they they tried to get everybody together to to do things to help the Gujarati community to recover from this disaster. Um, and you know, they've got lots of money, they've got lots of power, but actually what they didn't have was any connection with the humanitarian world. They were steel magnets and industrialists, but no connection at all. And um, it transpired that the, the, the head of the World Economic Forum, uh, Professor Klaus Schwab, challenged them to uh, get better connected with the humanitarian world. It was all very well for business to be out there, you know, making money, influencing politicians or you know, media or whatever, but um, they ought to be better connected with the humanitarians so that, uh, you know, when things like this happen, people can swing into action and actually go and help. And my boss was there at the time and um, he got challenged as well to get the, logistics community in the World Economic Forum to be better connected. And uh, he posted a, a, a job application, a job notice in uh, at my office and um, in Brussels. And I was looking for another change then and applied and, and got it. And um, my background uh, from you know, an academic point of view is I did uh, economics and development economics at university and had always been keen on the development side of uh, of the house and um, mm. this role just filled me with so much excitement that I could 
actually get into the humanitarian world, but continue, you know, in the DHL environment, in the commercial environment. So um, I got into it. I did a two-year secondment with the with the World Economic Forum, and um, in that time, we we had a there was a few emergencies happen, particular one in um, in in Iran, in Bam, in Iran, which I think was 2003, and um, it. Um, a friend went down and uh, was looking at it when we were trying to figure out what the logistics community could do better. And uh, <coughs> excuse me, he went down to Iran and he took me took a photograph of the the airfield, and he just uh, um, brought this picture back to me and said, "This is the chaos that was occurring on this airfield at Bam in Iran, as." Um, the, all the aid came in, pushed in by the Americans and almost literally pushed off the back of the planes. And uh, if you did some, some uh, research on the, the timing of this, the Americans had had a, a dispute with, the, with uh, well, dispute uh, more than that with the Iranians for 17 years. And we're trying to break this impact, diplomatic impasse. So they responded to the disaster by sending in aid aircraft and, but not getting off the planes, just pushing the stuff out the back on the <coughs> on the airfield. And the result was that uh, hardly people couldn't get it, couldn't fly in in the end because all this aid was just sitting around on the the tarmac. Nobody knew it was coming. Um, it was it was falling apart. It was uh, blowing away. It was getting you know becoming a a fod hazard as they call it in the uh, aviation world. So um, it suddenly clicked on me and uh, some other colleagues that that while we spent our time thinking that uh, you know logistics companies should be flying things around for everybody, when in fact that wasn't the the, the main need. It was to uh, be able to handle the stuff on the ground and um, mm. to be able to 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 get it off the airfield so that more aircraft could come in. Um, to, to manifest it, so inventorize it, so they knew what had come, mm. <coughs> to, to, to um, keep it discreet, so that uh, you keep, you know, you don't mix everything up and all this kind of stuff. It was just a fairly basic uh, ground handling logistics at the airfield. So um, that was the sort of the, the eureka moment. We saw, well, you know, logistics companies, it's not just about flying it in, it's handling it on the ground, and mm. from that from that point onwards, we went and recruited uh, people within my company and and uh, the other World Economic Forum uh, companies as well to um, act as uh, ground handling logistic logisticians, if you like, who could fly out at a minute's notice and go to somewhere and help on the airfield. For, for two to three weeks and that's what oh. we've been doing ever since we've done about 25 of them now um all the major disasters from the tsunami onwards um uh, i've been to two i've been to about 15 of the really big ones and uh we do some of the smaller ones as well so so that's what we do 700 volunteers in dhl none of them paid anything extra all trained up and uh, equipped to um, to fly out and go and help the airfield to uh, the airport to um, handle the surge in uh, in air freight. 
that comes after a natural disaster. Just to give you an idea of the numbers, um, we estimated after the uh, tsunami, we were in Sri Lanka and Colombo, and we estimated there were 6,300 tons of humanitarian aid that came in over a three-week period on 120 wow. unscheduled cargo flights. So you can, you can just imagine that the surge in freight for an airport that doesn't normally take much much air cargo. They haven't normally got the equipment, the labor, the space to be able to handle it. So that's where we step in. That's a massive job that I think people just don't know. Um, you know, we talk about teams sometimes, countries uh, sending teams over to help to give, you know, human resource of expertise, but thinking about aid being delivered without the airport working properly, maybe the grounds being disrupted, people have lost their lives, um, the people who should know how to coordinate these things haven't been trained to do it in such an intense situation. It's um, it's an amazing thing. Did I think that your CEO responding to this by establishing your role and then giving you that 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 authority and that position to go and make it happen is incredible. Have you noticed that the other organisations that were there at Davos at that original meeting, are they still involved with you or are they changed or lost the lost the passion? Interesting to say that because um, we started out as a um, as an industry-wide uh, group of about eight companies. And um, it's interesting because you know we you can get together as a as a as a group, but when you have to respond if you've got eight different policies in eight different companies saying when and where you can respond and your know, health certificates you've got to have, it all slows mm. down. And we, we responded to about a, a, two or three disasters before it folded and uh, we decided to stick just to the airport. They wanted to go off and get involved in the whole supply chain. Um, and we said, no, much better to focus on the airfield. So we went our own way and just said, no, nope, we're doing airfield. And um, 20 years later, we're still doing the airfield. And the others are, yeah, they're, they're about, they still do, um, they still have, uh, have roles, but uh, they tend to stay away from what we do and we stay away from what they do. And it works, it actually works better that way, unfortunately. I'd like to say we're all uh, collaborators, but uh, there's competition there as well, I'm afraid. I noticed in your profile um, about the teams and where they're established, there's 700 odd, over 700 volunteers who do this on top of their normal day job to be ready to respond. You've got teams based in Panama, Dubai, and Singapore. Is that accurate? That's right. Well, it's more, more accurate to say in countries around those cities. Right. Um, because uh, from the very beginning, our tenant was to... Uh, to have people who were within the region who could respond, not necessarily in every country, but in the region. So um, we've got about uh, 400 of those 700 are based in the South, Central South American countries and some in the Caribbean as well. So, you know, this week um, there was an alluvial eruption in Ecuador and um, the 
the the employees who are volunteers in Ecuador have have been there on site and made initial contact with uh, the aid agencies operating in um, uh, in Quito and the other the other um, the volunteers in the other countries are ready to fly in and help them. That's the way it works. So um, you know, in this part of the world, if something happened in Indonesia, we've got about um, 40, 50 volunteers in uh, mostly in Jakarta. Um, but you know, we can fly people in from Singapore, from uh, from India, from from Sri Lanka, from um, Australia, New Zealand, other countries, and go in and support them. And it's you know they're there in a day, and it doesn't cost very much. So that's that's how we're structured. So responding and working with the airfields and making sure the aid arrives safely, it's coordinated, it's logged, it's distributed correctly, and there's not the chaos that you talked about um, in Iran 20 years ago. How about the training that you do? I noticed that you do a lot of training in different countries and different regions as well. So what are some of, the, some of the key principles that people would need to know if they're interested in being involved in this area? Now the, the training we do is, is um, two sides to it, really. Um, there's a physical side in that, you know, we want to get people together, <coughs> see that they uh, can cope with the, the physical stress of going to a, uh, um, an airfield. You know, it's not the front line, but um, you've got freight coming in, mostly daylight hours only. It can be very hot. Um, maybe you haven't got the right equipment you need. Um, maybe you haven't got all the home comforts you're used to, but um, we'll prepare them physically for the job that they're gonna have, tell them what they're gonna be doing and make sure that they can operate the right equipment um, and that they can, uh, they're team players, they can, they can work with others. And make sure that they <coughs> they really want to do this. And um, the second side of it is the mental side that they we want people to be aware that when they go there, to be aware of what they'll be facing and the kind of uh, um, mental stress that they'll be under as well. So um, we, we we look at it on on both sides. And I mean, I guess we probably have a thirty percent dropout rate from people who sign up thinking it's all wonderful and oh, I'd love to go and have a do, do this. And then when they uh, do the training and actually realize what it's been be like, they uh, some of them fall by the wayside, which is absolutely great. We love it because you're, you're, you're deselecting those who don't want to be there. And they've, well, they've done it themselves most of the time. And um, there's no way you want to take people who are not comfortable with the, with the role. And uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's not as if we've got we're short of volunteers. So that's the way we, that's the way we work it. <laughs> in our um, class, that we've got some amazing emergency managers from America and the UK together doing a bachelor and a master's program. We were chatting last night with Todd DeVoe, who's um, the uh, Region Nine president of the International Association of Emergency Managers, and he raised this topic about trust and how trust is very important and trust between individuals, between organizations and even government departments. 
I know I didn't prepare you for this, but what do you feel is the role and the importance of trust between the members in the team and maybe DHL and, and the organizations and countries and regions you work in? Yeah, I think that, I mean, the, the trust between the individuals and the team is pretty easy because we all work for the same organization. We've had the same, you know, work training, um, <coughs> which is pretty extensive. So I won't really, I won't really labor on that bit too much, but it's the, the trust between organizations is much more interesting. Um, when we set out in the early 2000s to do this, there had been a lot of failed attempts by commercial companies to get into the humanitarian space. And um, one of them I'll, I'll, uh, I'll point out was actually was Nestle had um, tried to market um, milk powder in, the, in um, I, I think it was, um, to the to the humanitarian organizations and um they'd fallen badly with this um this initiative and lost their they lost the i don't know the can't remember the exact details but they lost the complete trust of the humanitarian world in this uh, this venture but not only that they they made it hard for other commercial companies to get into the into help humanitarians so mm. the, first five years of our mission was about building trust with organizations not only the um the the ngos also you know the united nations agencies and it culminated in a partnership in 2008 with the um un agency called ocha which is the office for coordination of humanitarian affairs based in geneva um, so there were there was five years of uh, trust building with them before they felt it was appropriate for them to to sign up with us. And then after that, it got a heck of a lot easier. We got invited to the right um, conferences, events, and and joint trainings and things. And gradually, the trust um, built up. Especially when you know we've done quite a few of these emergencies, these disasters, and um, you know, uh, NGO logisticians had seen us on the ground and worked with us, and um, we'd helped them clear their get their goods off the tarmac into temporary warehousing, and word got around. And um, you know, we helped anybody who brought freight in. We we didn't help the big guys more than the little guys. It was anybody who was there who needed it. We'd lend them the forklift. We'd lend them drivers. We'd give them pallets, we'd help them with move everything, we'd inventorize it for them. And uh, <coughs> reputation gained and uh, trust was built. And now there, are, there aren't that many commercial companies that do it, but um, the trust is a heck of a lot greater than it was back uh, 15 years ago. Hmm. So, you are retiring very soon after a long career and an incredible impact in helping people in really difficult circumstances. So what would you say are some key words of wisdom for people who would like to work in disaster response and thinking about this as a career or emergency managers thinking of moving up in their positions? What are some key principles, ideas, learnings and knowledge you would say they need to gather? Good question. Um, 
I think, I, look, I'm not particularly familiar with the um, the emergency management role per se in the uh, in the public sector, but just being very general, I would say keep moving. I would think is the is the um, would be my number one mantra because in the last couple of years of pandemic not being able to travel and go to conferences mm -hmm. and meet people and network has been awful mm -hmm. and um i'll turn that on its head and say that uh, you know if you if you if you're not moving around and going to going to events going to build your network hearing about new ideas from people um <coughs> actually going to some of these disasters then you're not you're not kind of building your uh, experience bank so um that would be my number one um number two i guess i mean uh just keep uh, keep developing uh ideas keep uh, bringing it encouraging younger people to come in encouraging students uh university um i do quite a lot of speaking at uh some of the at, at cranfield and um in uh, some of the universities in Europe, and there's a lot of interest in this field um, from from youngsters. And uh, you know, if you're able to build a career for them in it, then um, then certainly that's the that's the way to go. Because a, a well-trained, well-educated responder um, will be so much more effective than uh, somebody who who happens to do it uh, is doing it part time or an NGO guy who's uh, you know. Who's, who only goes occasionally um, and that's one of my criticisms of the initially of the uh, NGO world in the early days they used to share it round and so they'd send a different person every time to to respond to the disaster and that kind of contributed to the, to the chaos they thought they were mm. they thought they were um, sharing the experience round but um, from a you know practical point of view you want you want people who've seen it before and know it and can can gradually improve on it the, the, and professionalize it is that a is that a couple of points for you craig is that okay that's really good thank you good. i like that that point about consistency actually um consistency and people knowing and understanding building that context and that foundation of knowledge of how to respond and then they can actually be innovative and respond to new novel situations because they actually have that foundation of responding a number of times before. And yeah. I think the relationships probably are pretty important too. You'd start to build those relationships with people and trusting each other, knowing that you can hand the job over to somebody. Yeah. Chris, thank you so much for giving us a short part of your time this morning, New Zealand time. And um, I want to thank you as well for the contribution that you've made in leading and building a team that really makes a difference when people are really hurting in difficult circumstances. You've done an amazing thing and made a great impact. And so you deserve to be applauded for what you've done over these last 20 years. Thank you very much, Craig. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope I've uh, left something, um, something behind that's going to keep going for many years. I think it, I think it will in pretty strong hands and um i wish everybody in the business uh i wish them well and um you know it's inevitable we're going to have these disasters continuing because of the you know particularly climate change <coughs> so um 
I wish you all well. I learn well, learn from each other, and um, and respond well. And um, if you if you want to drop me any questions or uh, have a look, I'm on LinkedIn or uh, Chris Weeks at dhl.com. I'm around for the next couple of months, and uh, I'd be um, pleased to hear from you. Thank you, Chris. Please don't go anywhere just as I wrap up the show. So everybody else, um, if you're watching and you're an emergency manager, what we know about emergency managers is that you are constantly training, you're doing certificates, you've probably got that big binder full of different courses that you've done. And sometimes that doesn't translate into an academic degree. So if you want a bachelor degree, or maybe you want a graduate degree, like a master's in emergency response and management, then um, do reach out to us. We give recognition and of prior learning for emergency managers, and particularly people who have been in the military, who have such a huge store of skills and understanding, knowledge and experience that translates really well, actually, into emergency management. So we'd love to hear from you if we can help your career moving forward. We look forward to seeing you again on our next video cast.